0: Please.
1: Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I'm your host, Scott Doctor Jake Skolfein, musicologist and author of Everything's on the One, the first guy to funk. If you don't have your copy, get on over to Amazon to pick one up. You'll be so glad you did. Whether you're watching the video version of this at FunkinStuff.net or on YouTube, or listening to the audio-only podcast version. From providers like iTunes and Spotify, as always, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in the show. Speaking of which, if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube. That's where Truth and Rhythm lives. All kinds of goodies you'll get uh, early premieres, and it's all free. So make sure you sign up. Tell a friend. Tell family. Also, get your official Truth and Rhythm and Funkin' and Stuff gear at the FunkinStuff.net store. Cool stuff like I'm wearing right here. Truth and Rhythm shirts. Show your support and love of the show, and also the musicians and the music that they represent. Um, also, I want to give a shout out to the Funk Exhibition Center and Hall of Fame in Dayton, Ohio, of which I'm very proud to be an official Funk Ambassador. Go to funkcenter.org to learn more and keep the funk alive. And now, with all that, it's time to get on with the show. Enjoy. I'm thrilled to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership, Byron Miller, aka Funky Boy, aka Psychobass, a composer, producer, and as you might have gathered, an extraordinary bass master. Starting out in the mid-1970s as a member of the short-lived funk band, The Counts, he played with Royer's Ubiquity and Santana before making his biggest impact as a career-long collaborator with keyboarding wizard George Duke. In particular, his prominent bass was front and center on Duke's 1977 funk classic reach for it. Miller went on to play with greats like Herbie Hancock, Ramsey Lewis, Norman Connors, Stanley Turantine, Stanley Clark, Joe Sample, Philip Bailey, Jeffrey Osborne, a 16-year stint with Luther Vandross, and even Beyonce. He has also released five albums himself since 1990, including the super-funky Psycho Bass 1 and 2 from 2015 and 2018. Byron, thank you for joining the show. How are you?
0: I'm good. You did your homework, huh?
1: I try, you know.
0: You pulled the counts out of the head. Wow. Yeah. People don't never ask me about the counts. Yeah?
1: yeah. Well, I'm, I'm going to. <laughs> right.
0: right.
1: Yeah. Well, it helps when you're a fan, you know. So I don't go back as far as the counts, but I definitely go back to, you know, the beginning of George Duke. So we'll talk about that. Where are you coming to us from today, Byron?
0: I'm in El Tadina, uh California. I'm in a place called the B Spot, which is my recording studio. And uh, this is where I do all my cycle bass. I do all my bass playing here now. If you want me to play on the session, you got to send it to me and I'll do it here. Because it's a pandemic, I'm not going, I'm here. So, uh, El Tadinas, the B Spot, and um, that's where I get down, at. it's my place.
1: Yeah, well, I lived uh, for a long time on the west side, Culver City, Santa Monica, grew up there, so, yeah, I know the region pretty well.
0: You're east coast now?
1: Yeah, outside Charlotte since uh, 2006. Okay. Yeah, so. All right. But uh, my heart's still, you know, out there. That's why I represent.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I'm a diehard Laker. I mean, I love my Pistons and my Lions. I'm a diehard Lion fan, so my heart is broken every year. But they won last week, so I'm happy.
1: Well, I don't know if you can see behind me on the wall there, but unfortunately right now I'm also a Dallas Cowboys fan. So it's a it's a rough season. <laughs> yeah,
0: it's really hard. Dak, Dak went down, ugly.
1: Ugly, Out. very ugly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, thrilled to have you on. Uh, thank you so much for making the time, much appreciated. And uh, fans are going to uh, love it. i uh, been looking forward to uh, sharing your story with them. My pleasure. Yeah. So, uh let's jump in with uh your origins back in Detroit and uh we were talking before we came on that you actually, you know, uh played with the Young Magic Johnson, so that's very cool, but I also want to know about, you know, your roots in music and Motown, man. It's all about music, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah. H- h- how'd you gravitate towards the bass, Byron? It was uh
0: it was not intentional. It was kind of magical, really. What happened was Um, when I was a young, young kid, my mom had me taking piano lessons that lasted about three months and I didn't get along with the teacher and she had a ruler. She was slapping my hands and I just, I wasn't having it. So I went from that to trying to play sports and I played little league football. I played football in junior high and I played football as a freshman in high school and I broke my foot. As a quarterback, we were 0 and 9 every year. So we had a crazy offensive line. No one. It was crazy. So the first game, I broke my foot. So I was in a cast. I couldn't do anything. And my mother, I don't know where she came up with it, but she stopped at a music store and bought me this bass and brought it home and put it in my hands. And I taught myself how to play it. Hmm. Never had a lesson never wanted a lesson and just always knew at at this point i never remember not being able to play Hmm. so it's just kind of magical to me it's kind of it's deep how that happened you know so credit frederica miller she she knew she seen my gift and i don't even know how she seen it because she never heard me play anything so that's what happened that's why that's why i still do it you know
1: Wow, I had no idea when I brought up Dak, we brought up Dak Prescott that there'd be synergy with what happened to you,
0: <laughs> right? But Dak, <laughs> no, I didn't break my foot like that. No, that was crazy. His his thing was going the other way. I I broke my foot. And I was in a cast. So, yeah. um, a lot of Motown records. A lot of listening to Jameson with a turntable, learning them songs note for note. That's how I learned how to play.
1: Wow. So were were you always, uh, you know, attracted to that particular music or you just found it was good for learning the bass?
0: I was attracted to all kind of music, like the CTI records, all the jazz records. My cousin, who's passed away since then, was a guitar player. And he was a bad cat and he was into Coltrane and everything. So he kind of kept me, he kept me schooled up, even though I couldn't play that stuff. He kept me schooled up. And, um, I mean, we listened to Black Sabbath, Santana, we listened to Freddie Hubbard, George Benson, George Duke, um, you know, all in high school and, you know, never, never knew I would ever play with George Duke, but I was a fan back when I was learning how to play. And a lot of James James and Chuck Rainey, those, those are really pretty much my teachers without teaching me. So I grew up listening to everything Sunrod just crazy Miles Davis everybody
1: And I think I saw in your bio you also mentioned some of the usual suspects like Larry Graham and uh, oh, yeah. You know, you
0: play the bass and you didn't listen to Larry Graham I met I was doing a TV show called the vibe Greg filling was a musical director. I was a, the house band the bass player Larry Graham came through there i mean i was like a kid i was asking him for his autograph and then larry said man i've been listening to you it kind of blew me away same thing i met willie weeks and big fan willie's a bad cat he said man i've been listening to you for years so it's funny how i just kind of turned around sometimes you do what you do and you don't know who's
1: listening yeah that's got to yeah. be an incredible thrill uh, when that happens real oh, yeah.
0: stanley clark the same way we're very good friends to the day but he was listening. Alfonso Johnson, a cats that I was listening to ended up listening to me. So we, we talk about it now we have those stories now that everybody's, you know, older and getting old, you know, but um, yeah, it's a good thing, we're still doing
1: it. So what was your first, uh, you know, significant uh, band experience, you know, playing with others and, and kind of getting the feel for that?
0: Um, it was a band in Detroit called the Ebony Set and um Ricky Lawson was a drummer Mm -hmm. who passed passed uh about five years ago Ricky played with he played with Duke he played with Michael Jackson he played with everybody Ricky was a drummer in that band David Miles was a guitar player uh the leader of the band was Victor Hall and Victor had a had Victor got a master's degree from Eastern Michigan he was a little older than us so he kind of taught us how to play as a combo and um, we played gigs around Detroit. And um, that was my first experience playing with other cats, playing some good music. So it was the Ebony set out of Detroit. Hmm. So we, were, we were pretty famous locally.
1: Yeah. And, and about how much uh, time transpired between that and, and the Count's experience?
0: It almost happened during the same time. Because the Counts, I remember Leroy came to a club we were playing, and um, he checked me out. And then another drummer named Leslie Daniels, who ended up giving me my first Precision bass that I played Reach For It on. Leslie was a drummer with the Counts. And he said, man, we want to fly you to Atlanta to, to do this record. And I heard about the Counts when I was coming up. They were a famous group there. I said, The Counts, really? So I went out to Atlanta and did this record called The Funk Pump. And I forget the name of the record, but that's how I got turned on to The, the Counts, through Leslie Daniels, who was a drummer, older drummer, who kind of took me under his wing. Leslie actually called me Goldfinger because he said, man, you just got a neck to playing that bass. And I didn't really, I was always trying to learn. I never had a music lesson, so I didn't ever think I was that good. But um, they flew me out there, paid me, and um, that's how I got hooked up with the Counts, the fabulous Counts from Detroit.
1: And how was it for you being in the studio for the first time?
0: Um, I was terrified. You know, the red light went on, you can't mess up. But I had done a couple of sessions in Detroit for Westbound Records. um, You know, where they would put a big sheet of music in front of me. And, and go and count it off and i'm sitting there i can't read music i'm like okay so i would always have a piano player play the bass line. you play the bass line once i got it note for note i could remember what it was so that's how i did sessions in those days later on i learned how to read but um you know it's always it was in the early days it was frightening when they red light went on because you knew you couldn't mess up so uh I went from being terrified to getting excited when the red light on when it comes on now I'm I'm a different cat.
1: You know I've heard that kind of story from a lot of musicians you know uh sort of faking until fake it until you can make it and uh
0: i fake my butt off, man.
1: Yeah, but in to, to on some level do you think that that makes you have to even be sort of like that much better in terms of feel and uh, and all that because you have to compensate for not being able to do the reading
0: absolutely you know you have to you have to reach for other stuff mm-hmm. and um, you know you kind of take a baseline that they they wrote out for you and you play it as well as you could memorize it and you kind of put your own thing to it and you make them love it so I used to make them love or make them change their baseline by doing stuff and I was like I heard what you did there but can we try this Oh yeah, let's do that. Not remembering what they did. So I would make them love what I did. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's how I made it. That's how I faked my way through it. <laughs> I would call it faking, it's you know Yeah, it's faking. It's
1: faking. <laughs> well that aspect of it. The playing is certainly for real. Yeah. Yeah. Um so what happened from that point, you, you ended up uh somewhere hooking up with uh Ndugu Chancellor and, and, you know, kind of doing some stuff with him. How did you go from, you know, the counts and what you're doing to starting that part of your, your career?
0: Well, I did the council and I was playing with the Ebony set. And Ricky Lawson was playing with the Ebony set. And um, there's a club in Detroit called Watts Mozambique. Where me and Ricky used to sneak in to go see Roy Ayers play. So one night we snuck in and we told Roy, let us sit in. We know it. every song that you know. And Roy said, y'all not even old enough to be in here. Get out of here. Roy let us hit the stage and we played the whole set with Roy. Every song he called, we played the shit out of it. And um, I graduated, Ricky graduated. We got a call from Roy. You want to go out on the road? He called us and took us out on the road. Now, I graduated from high school. I was supposed to go to college. My dad was like, you ain't going nowhere. You're going to college. And um, I said, I'm sorry. I'm not going to college. And my mom said, I'll drive you to the airport. I'll take care of him. <laughs> so we flew to New wow. York, man, and played in this club called McHale's. And that's how I got started with Roy Ayers.
1: Wow, and this is like 74?
0: 73. To, into 73, going to 74. Yeah.
1: Because uh-huh. I
0: graduated in 72. So it was right out of high school. Not not too much longer.
1: Wow. That must have yeah. been incredible thrill. I mean get, you know, between going to the, going there and also who you were with and wow.
0: Yeah. All my friends were going to college. We were going to New York to play. So we were in that New York scene with all the chicks and you know, it was in New York was was killing them. And uh, we, we had a ball. We were staying actually we stayed in Teenick, New Jersey near the Isley Brothers. Um, Ricky had an uncle that stayed there. They let us stay there. So we would drive every day back and forth from New York to New Jersey. His uncle had a big Cadillac. He li- used to let us drive it. So we were on cloud nine. We had a ball. Hmm. We, had, we had a ball. So that's how I hooked up with Roy Ayers. And, One what, was that big Ricky going in New York.
1: What, was Philip Wu a part of that band yet at that time?
0: Philip wasn't. We got Philip in the band later. Okay. Philip got in the band right after I left the band, and Ricky left the band. But we, Philip used to sit in with us when we would go to Seattle. So, we're well, getting back to the story. We were. I was playing with Roy. Ricky was playing with Roy. Ricky got a call to go play with Quincy Jones, the Brothers Johnson. So he left the Royer band. We were in Seattle playing, and in Dugo, Carlos Santana and Carlos's manager came in the club and they heard me playing with Roy. Carlos left the club and told Indugo, I want that bass player. So Indugo, he's a magical talker. He, you know, he said, Man, where you staying? I said, We're playing we're staying at the Edgewater Inn. He said, I'm staying there too. It ended up, me and Indugo were in rooms right next to each other. Hmm. So we stayed up all night talking. And he said, Well, you want to gig with Santana you pretty much got it I said man you, you got to be kidding." two days later they called me to join the band with Santana and I left Roy Roy was I think he's just getting over being mad at me for that now <laughs> well wow. yeah. so that's how I met in and got hooked up with Santana and then in um, Dougal hooked me up with George yeah So that's that whole thing happened right there
1: okay so what was Roy like back in those days? How would you describe him?
0: Roy was, he was, Roy's a bad cat, man. He, Roy could really play. Roy was a really nice cat. Um, Roy has a big ego, you know, so he always keeps younger musicians. So he keeps you under his thumb. But Roy always was a little scared of me because I was from Detroit. He, he did a couple of things and I told Roy, I said, man, you do that again, I just, I'm out. I keep enough money in my pocket to buy a ticket, I'm out. So I always kept him off balance, but he was a great cat. He's a great cat, great player. And um, I learned a lot of music with Brooke. Bad cat, musical.
1: Yeah, and Bad you cat. you uh, also, you played though, on the Mystic Voyage record, right?
0: That was the first record I did in yeah. Seattle, Washington, where I met Indigo and Carlos. Mm-hmm. During that same time, we were recording, and I met Santana. And um, that record came out, and maybe three weeks later, I left the band and went and played with Santana.
1: Right, so that was the, my first record. I love that record, though. I mean, that's just a classic you know, jazz funk yeah. record of the era, for sure.
0: Yeah, Roy Ayers, um, Chano O'Farrell, Ricky Lawson, Kelvin Brown. Yeah, it was, a, it was a lot of fun playing with that band. We would play to clubs, pack lines around the corner. We, it was a hot band. It was a hot band. That's that's where I really learned how to. That's where I got my road chops at. Mm-hmm. Play with Roy, playing in every city in America. You know, uh, funky hotels, good hotels. It was it was an experience. Yeah, the jazz circuit, the circuit.
1: During during those shows, though, did some of you know uh, the other jazz cats that you admired maybe come up from time to time and and jam with roy at all or th-
0: yeah well we ran into a lot of cats you know um Johnny hathaway uh a lot of cats man but roy roy was a stickler at that time about not letting people get up and play at that time mm. but freddie hubbard george benson everybody wanted to see roy in this young band he had you know patrice russian i met patrice when i was playing with roy up in frisco um Herbie Hancock came and checked us out once you know so it was a lot of people that was coming to check out check out Roy at that time
1: yeah I had uh Philip on the show a while back and the way yeah, he, well, the way, the way he described uh getting with Roy son and kind of similar to how you did you know uh, he knew every Roy Ayers song right from the get go and so because of that he got called up you know
0: no well he knew Roy's songs but Ricky Lawson got him in the band. We used to hang out with Philip every time we went to Seattle, and Philip and Ricky got really tight. And um, Roy loved Ricky. They never had a falling out. They, you know, Ricky went to play with Quincy, and he called Roy. Called Roy called Ricky looking for a keyboard player. Ricky put Wu with Roy. That's how that's how uh, Wu got the gig.
1: Well, but he says though he got it also because he knew all the material from the yeah. you know. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. Um you no, know, wool's a bad cat man.
1: Yeah, yeah, he's still in, in Japan. Yeah. Um so moving to Santana, Byron, what was that transition like for you?
0: Um It was like I said, my career has been magical. It was like I used to sit in my basement with my two cousins listening to Santana records, smoking weed, sneaking to smoke weed, listening to all that music. And the next thing I know, I'm at SIR in Frisco, the bass player for Santana. I went from making $250 a week with Roy Ayers to making $7,000 a week with Santana. Wow. And I was just a kid. So, it was like, okay, I made it. I'm, I made it. I'm, I'm at the top of the world now. I made it. And um, that was the feeling. It was like like a movie going to Hollywood and getting a, getting a big role in a, in a film. And, you know, you're getting paid and you could do whatever you want to do. You know, paid off my mama's house, did a bunch of things. So, it was like, it was like a dream come true. Yeah.
1: What about uh, musically? Um, did it challenge you, or was right in your lane, or what?
0: It was. It was in my lane at that at that time in my growth. After playing with Roy, I mean, I played all kind of music with Roy. I mean, I was swinging. I was, you know. Roy did Latin music. You know, it kind of got me ready for Santana. So I was doing Latin. Roy did a lot of Latin, African, African Latin music. Um. And like I said, I grew up listening to Santana, so I knew that, I knew his groove, you know, as a bass player, if you know someone's groove, you pretty much got it, you can get in there, you know, so between that and playing with N'Dougal Chancellor, who was like my, my rock, I mean, I just kept my eye on N'Dougal, so he kept me cool, but Roy, that playing with Roy got me ready for that gig.
1: You must have played some big venues, uh, bigger, I'm thinking, than Roy Ayers and that kind of thing, right?
0: Oh, yeah. We were doing stadiums. I did Anaheim Stadium out here in California. We, um, we did a tour where we opened up for the Grateful Dead, played in front of 200,000 people in open space. We did huge arenas. We did, we did stadiums. So it went from doing clubs to doing stadiums to making, making money. Yeah. plus cars had a thing called uh, profit sharing so we would make a, a percentage of the gate if it sold out we got paid we got paid extra so between the profit sharing and per diem I never had to cash my check hmm. I, I was making out like a fat rat yeah, did, yeah
1: did that's you, one
0: of the best gigs I ever had
1: did, did you get your own base tech also and that kind of thing
0: Oh, I had my own base tech. I had my own everything. Wow. You know, I, I got picked up in airports from with limos. and um, I stayed up in Frisco. I, I stayed in a hotel, the Miyako Hotel, so I had a suite there. I stayed there for two years. I ordered room service every day. Um, yeah, you really couldn't say that much to me. The only person that could say anything to me was my mama. <laughs> you know, yeah. Thank it was you. a good time.
1: Sounds awesome. Um, and, and what was, uh, Carlos like, you know, how did he impress you musically and also just as a guy?
0: Um, I guess I was more impressed because he was so famous. Um, Carlos could play. And, and another thing that impressed me about Carlos is that he has a, he has a style. He developed his own style. Um, he might not have been the technician and all of that, but he had his own style. When you heard him play, you knew who he was. And I tell young cats now, it's a lot of cats playing with the thumbs and doing all of that. You have to develop a style. You got to, you know, people tell me, did you play on this record? I said, yeah, I knew it was you because I could tell by your style. So Carlos, more than being a great, great musician, he has his own style. He's, he's a stylist. Um, musically, personally, he's a weird cat, man. He's a weird dude, man. I mean, especially when I was playing with him. I think he's loosened up since then. But he kind of kept to himself. At that time, he was burning incense all the time. And I'm a young dude from Detroit. I'm like, man, man, what you doing? Yeah. you Burning <laughs> incense. You're on his floor on tour, you knew where he was because the floor smelled like incense. So, to me, I really, personally, I didn't understand him at that time. Didn't, really didn't get in his way, didn't try because I was making good money and I just like kept to myself. Me and dugo hung out and Amando who was, shit. I think at that time, Amando was in his 70s. He just died recently, almost 98 or something like that. So there was a couple of people I hung with, and I just stayed to myself. Carlos is a great cat. I, it was a great experience. Weird dude, personally, for me.
1: Yeah, I can see
0: talking. I have not talked to him one time since I was in the band. <laughs> not once, since the 70s. Not once.
1: Wow. Well, maybe after seeing this, you know, you'll hear from him.
0: <laughs> I doubt it. I doubt it. But I would, I would look forward to talking to him.
1: You know? uh, um yeah but I, I definitely very distinctive style no question about that and his his sound um did um did you get any um like solo spots or you just kind of played the the cuts as they were or?
0: um i don't remember soloing with carlos nah no i just played played the songs man and it was a high energy band man we we used to go in, you know, with Tom Costa, and it was a high-energy band, and it was loud as hell. It was the loudest band I ever played with in my life. You know, it was the first time I ever wore earplugs on stage, you know. And Doug would say, you better use the earplugs, man, or you ain't gonna be able to hear about time you're 21. So, yeah, it was a loud band, and um, it was a great experience, though. So.
1: so the two of you must have just perfected your lock, you know, in that band. Yeah. Yeah, I mean. I,
0: I think what, what happened with me and dugo is that I looked up to him as a big brother, and we became really, really close as friends. And that, that kind of translated to the way we played. And he respected me musically. And I was in awe of him, but, you know, never took a back seat when we were on stage. You know, if he was going for it, I'm going for it. I'm trying to kick his ass. He's trying to kick my butt. And um, we always looked at it like that. We would do a lot of sessions together, and um, we would do a take and then walk out in in a control room and look at each other and go, that's how we did. And we would walk walk out the studio and know that we kicked butt. You know, um, heads and shoulders, one of the, the greatest musicians I've ever played with was in Dugo Chance. There was nothing he couldn't play or read. He taught me how to read. He said, dude, if you read, you're going to take L.A. over. I said, okay. <laughs> Let's do this. You know, so I had, you know, it was cool.
1: Is there anything about his uh, approach or technique that you can identify that sort of made him special?
0: Yeah. In Dugo played the drums, it's a rhythm instrument, but he played the drums like it was a, a keyboard or something. It's so melodic. All his all his drums had different note tones. He was one of the first cats I see to play with the Rotown. And he was solo and just stopped playing and, and hugged that roto sound the Rototom and it, it twisted to different notes and sang with it. And he was just so musical and melodic. I've never heard a drummer like that. And to this day, I really don't hear cats playing like that. And he was so ethnic. He was so African and, and funk at the same time. He had a, a, a mixture of a lot of different things. And technically, you, you know, I don't care who you could talk about any kind of music, time change, or anything. You could not leave in in the back seat. He would he'd be there waiting for you. He knows what you're talking about. He's the only cat that I knew that could give George Duke a run for his money musically, hmm. technically, and that's that's not easy said. Herbie too. He he all over her. Hmm. And Dougal was at the top of his game.
1: Wow. Did did you end up doing any studio stuff with Santana or just the tours?
0: Just the tour just a tour um, before he would I toured with him during the Amigos album and before we could get to the next record <laughs> Carlos uh, he fired me and Greg Walker and when he fired the two of us and Dugo quit the band but the band was getting too black for him mm. so he let us he let us go but he did me a favor because that's when I hooked up with Duke
1: so the two of you uh, connected with Duke. So how how did that transition take place?
0: Well, and Dougal are always recorded with Duke and played with Duke and they, they did records. And um, George wanted to do the George Duke band and he called and Dougal. And then Dougal called George, he said, I got the bass player." So I flew, I remember the last few gigs I was doing you know, I did Santana. The last few gigs I was doing with Santana, George was flying me from. I was rehearsing with Santana. He flew me to L.A. to record, and then I would fly back to rehearse with Santana the next day. And um, then not long after that, I got fired from Santana. I guess somebody somebody told on me. Something happened, and um, we started doing the first record. I love. Was, I Love the Blues, She Heard My Cry. That's my first record with Duke. And um, that's how I got with Duke. That was uh, 75 or 76?
1: 76. Yeah. 76,
0: 77, maybe. Cause I, no, it's 77. The beginning of 77 because the last tour I did with George Duke, and I'm just off, I mean, with Santana, I think it was 76. Because i remember i have a luggage tag that has 76 on it right now so it had to be 76.
1: the bicentennial year yeah yeah
0: yeah <laughs> absolutely yeah
1: um so what was it like when you first went did you first uh, play live with duke or you first went into the studio with duke
0: studio yeah. what happened was i flew to la and dougal picked me up at the airport i remember i had a little cassette player that I was taking with me to the rehearsal with George Duke for the record, because we rehearsed at his house. And um, I think I had one of them 90 minute tapes and I, I left the recording on for some reason. So the recording had, and picking me up from the airport, me and him talking all the way to George Duke's house, the rehearsal with George Duke. And George put music in front of me too. But I guess Ndugo already told him, well, he ain't ain't reading notes, but he can read chord changes. So we rehearsed for maybe a half an hour for that whole record. And the next day we went in the studio, man, and we were in the studio a couple of days and did the whole record.
1: Wow. And I have
0: it all on a cassette player. I still have the cassette. Of the time I met Duke, Ndugo picked me up from the airport, the ride, the rehearsal, and leaving. It was a 120-minute take. That's what it was.
1: Yeah. Well, you've got some good keepsakes between the luggage tag and the, and the recording. And <laughs> I got
0: all kinds of stuff. Man. I got all kinds of stuff. Yeah.
1: What, what would you say... What would, how did uh, Duke impress you when you first met him? You know, just personally and later on musically.
0: Um, my first impression was... Damn, this cat's nice. No ego, nice. You know, he started calling me B right away. B, you need something, you want some you want a drink, you want you know. His wife Corrine was sweet to me. Um, just nice and he went from nice to when he got on that keyboard, it was all about it was all about taking care of business. And at that point you have to focus and um I had never really played in odd time signatures before. And he had one song that was in our time signatures, and Duke just said, watch me. Every time I hit the cymbal, that's one, watch me. That's how I learned how to play in our time signature. But Duke challenged me musically in every way you could think of, from from being from a young cat all the way up to right before I died, because I did so many records with him, so many different kinds of music, you know. Um, like I said, him and the Dougal were far none the most accomplished musicians I've ever been around. George Duke was in, an incredible musician. I remember I was riding with him on the airplane. He was sitting next to me. And he was writing out, writing music, and I was, and I said, "What are you doing?" He said, "I'm writing a song." I said, "Well, how you doing that? You don't have your, your piano." He said, "I don't need that. He wrote a song." He said, "I'll play it for you. Sound check." And that, in, that was incredible to me, where he could hear the chords and, and write it out and know exactly what it was without having to play anything. You know, so just the musicianship was like on cloud nine on Planet, Planet, get out of here. You know, it's just crazy from funk to, to anything, gospel, anything, any kind of music.
1: How, how so
0: from, if, how you know, from... you had to play everything.
1: How familiar were you with his catalog before you went to play with him?
0: I I was pretty familiar with it. I, like I said, I came up listening to Duke, Herbie, um, you know, listening to Quincy records and all the CTI records, George, uh, George Benson and Hubert Laws. and You know, I knew about Ron Carter and Ray Brown, Chuck Rainey and Donald Byrd and Blackbirds and all of that. What
1: about like some of the real crazy stuff that Duke was doing too, like Zappa you know, and that oh, kind of shit. thing?
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yellow Snow and all of that. Yeah, I was listening to all that stuff. I thought Zappa was out of his mind. Yeah. You know, uh, that was some bad stuff. I still listen to that stuff. I went to Sweden maybe four years ago to do a tribute to Duke and Zappa. And I had to play some of that Zappa music with every, every time you turn your head it's a different time signature crazy but i have i have fun doing it, it was a challenge doing it. but um
1: everything yeah. i've heard about about duke was just that he was a sweetheart
0: sweetheart nicest cat in the world yeah yeah no ego none of that just straight up nice cat straight up
1: so tell us about the the making of reach for it the album and then we'll talk about the track um you know what was the vibe like? You know, and, and what do you remember about those sessions?
0: Well, we got to go ahead head of the studio. We were playing the Duke Band. We were playing in Washington D.C. at the Cellador Club. That's yeah, that was the name of it. And um, <clears throat> there was a section in the show where um, me and Duga would just play. So. Um, One particular night, we started playing, and it got funky, and George started playing that bass line. And I think I might have soloed a half an hour in the the club. People were going crazy. Chicks were throwing their drawers at me. All kind of stuff was happening. And um, we got off the road. We went in the studio. George said, you remember that night? Let's do that. Told Carrie McNabb to hit record. And we went for it. It was just a bass solo and George and the funk funky. And then all the vocal stuff, they they put on that later. But it was um, reach for it, that track. I know the track was probably eight minutes, but we probably played that in the studio for about 25 minutes. And George edited. He did his little edits. Him and the Dougal went on and did the talking part. We added guitar. And it was George's biggest biggest hit, his first gold record. It's so I, we, we all got a piece of the writers up there too.
1: That's beautiful. I, I I can't I can't say enough about that track though. You know I mean it's just such a classic, amazing groove, and yeah. I never get tired of hearing it. You know, there's not like a lot of lyrics or anything going on in it, but I never get tired of hearing that groove. And I would Untouched. love to hear the 25 minute version too that you just mentioned.
0: Crazy man. I, I so he did that. There was another record he did, the Son of Reach for. Where well, he put another section of that solo in it, you got to go on um, YouTube and find it. the son of Reach for it, and that, that's just a whole nother section of stuff that I was playing. But uh, George did, he did the first part of solo was pretty much intact, he did a little edit, and um, when I heard it, I was like, damn, that's me, wow. And they put that sucker out, man. It was number one in in like two, three weeks. Matter of fact, we were in Europe playing, and we got a word from uh, Sony that the record had went number one. So we had to come back to the States and start doing all these big concerts with LTD and Confunction. And we were like, we were out there. Now we were a funk band. Yeah. So that song started at the Salador Jazz Club really a jam it was a jam but the, the with the big ears of duke and he's so incredible he heard it and he was like okay i'm gonna take this in the studio i'm gonna do something with this so thank you duke because that put me on the map yeah
1: so were some of the words sort of improvised at, in the studio or you know some of the rapping words in it and stuff like that
0: the rapping were George and the dougal sat down and and did that um Because Duke was a big fan of the Funkadelic. What happened was, how George got turned out. (laughs) And I wish he was here to tell the story. One day, um, after we did the From Me to You album, and Dougal came to George and gave him a Funkadelic record. George played that record and it changed his life. George was already funky, but he was more funky after that. And that's how, that's how the talking stuff, that's when Duke came out of it back and started talking like, like Clinton a little bit, but he had his own thing too. So that's, he, and Duke gave him a Funkadelic record and the rest is history.
1: Well, actually the track always made me think of Bootsy more than George, but you know, just has some of that Bootsy vibe.
0: Yeah, well, it was, it's all in the family, right?
1: Yeah. Did, did you, you or the other guys ever go see the, the Mothership show? With P-Funk, oh yeah, yeah. oh yeah,
0: Me Dugan, we we didn't miss a show. We didn't miss a Funkadelic show. We didn't miss an Earth, Wind, and Fire show. And Dugan thought he was Maurice White on the slide because he wanted to be Maurice White. Um, we 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 caught all the shows. Weather report. It was me and Dugan. In Dugan, you see me. And we kept. We caught all the shows. We caught all the shows. We wanted to see what everybody was doing.
1: And then reached for it. I think, if I'm remembering correctly, I don't have the record in front of me, but there was another funk track on that called "Watch Out, Baby," right? Yeah. Yeah. Was Stanley. Yeah. That
0: was Stanley. Yeah, that was uh, my first experience here in Stanley playing the studio, because George said, "Hey, man, um, you know, don't don't be feeling some kind of way. I'm, I'm got a song I need Stanley to play on." I said, Stanley who? He said, Stanley Clark. I said, oh, okay. And um, that was a magical session. Those three, it was crazy. It was crazy. And me and Stanley are still, like, really tight. Every from that day. <laughs> yeah, that was a that was a crazy session. Because Stanley was playing this new bass. He had a steel neck. Uh, it was a Kramer, I think. A Kramer bass. And uh, he had that sucker talking. I don't even think he plays it anymore, but that was a great session. That's the first time I met Stanley personally. I used to to go see Chick play and I would see Stanley, but that was the first time I met Stanley, was in Paramount Studio out here in California on on that session, because George had him play that and another song where he played upright.
1: When did you uh, relocate to uh, Southern California?
0: Um, Officially, I played with Santana, and then, and I was staying in Frisco in a hotel. And then I ended up, when I left Santana, I moved down here to California. So that must have been 70, like, right before I got with Dukes, 76, because I know we did reach, no, 77, we did reach for it, 77, 78. Those, those, those years run into each other for me. Now I'm getting older, and I remember like I used to.
1: Yeah. 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 So plus back plus, then
0: I sister here, my, my big sister was here. My brother was here. All my siblings were here at that time. They got tired of the snow in Detroit. So they moved out here and I was on the road and then I moved here.
1: I was going to say that plus back then, you know, the acts were tending to put out like a record every single year, sometimes two records in a year. So yeah. it, it's hard to remember exactly, you know, yeah. the years, yeah. but, um, and Duke, you know, you guys came back with um, "Don't Let Go" in '78. They had Dookie yeah. Stick, Duke-y another all-time right. classic. Um, so, I imagine, uh, did did Duke uh, communicate that he kind of wanted to take that formula and go back and kind of repeat that success?
0: Um, Duke was a musical genius. He knew he knew what bought him that mansion over there in the Hollywood Hills. You know, after reach for it, so um he would come in his studio with his chart and say man we're going to do this and it was dookie stick b i need you to take a solo right here and dugo i need you to say this and and so he he kept that formula that funk formula from from reach for it all the way up until um until, and Dougal left the band they fell out about about a couple of things and dugo left so it kind, of changed, it kind of changed the funk in the band, because Ricky Lawson got in the band after that.
1: But don't Let Go in particular. I don't know if all the credits are on the record or not, but I mean, that was like more of a tight, really an all-star band that was happening then. I mean, Sheila E. was doing percussion. and
0: Yeah. Don't Let Go, Sheila E., Napoleon Murphy Brock, from, uh, from uh, Frank Zappa, Josie James, len davis was len in the band at that time we had a few a few background singers but really releasing singers though. um civil thomas rufus thomas daughter was in the band d hendrix was in the band for a minute um icarus johnson guitar player icarus was a bad boy he was in the band I haven't talked to Icarus in years. I hear I hear he's doing his own blog now. Hmm. You know he's a trumper, so I don't really, I don't really talk to Icarus anymore. No but um, it was a great band. Yeah. And this I season. saw,
1: I don't know if you remember, and I, you know, of course didn't know you then, but I saw the show that uh, was done at the Roxy on Sunset in Hollywood right around that time. Really? Yeah.
0: Yeah, and the had a big white boots on, it came up to our knees.
1: <laughs> yeah, I used to go to all those Roxy shows. The Roxy was happening back then.
0: We used to turn the Roxy out. Yeah. Yeah, that was a good time. Yeah. I remember the Roxy shows. Yeah.
1: yeah. I think the if,
0: first time I played at the Roxy was with Roy Harris, though.
1: I missed that one.
0: Yeah, that was funky too.
1: I think it was all of maybe like six dollars, you know, at that time.
0: That's it. Yeah, you can't do nothing with $6 no more.
1: Nah. Um, so did you guys rehearse a lot? You know, was that part of the thing too?
0: We rehearsed before we did a record. And um, yeah, we, re- we rehearsed before we did a record and then we would rehearse before we did a tour. Um, yeah, George didn't believe in going out there messing messing up. Yeah, we actually yeah we we did rehearse, cause he was a stickler on playing the music right, and and Duggar was the mistake police. If you made a mistake, and Dougal looking at you like you're crazy, you know. So, yeah, we rehearsed. You don't just play that music and just think you're gonna walk out there and do it. We rehearsed a lot. Yeah.
1: Was there anyone that you guys um, shared the stage with on any of those sets that you did? that just really kind of blew your mind that you're very impressed with, you know, you mentioned some of the acts that you guys went out with on the funk circuit.
0: Um, you know, on the funk circuit, LTD, them cats were bad, man. That kind of, that kind of changed Duke a little bit too. And then and Duke during that time, Duke and Jeffrey Osborne got tight and, and Duke started producing Jeffrey's. Um, It was a lot of bad cats out there. We, I mean, we did some shows with Rick James. He had a badass band. A lot of those bands at that time were tight. You know, we were like, we were like funk jazz. though. we were, we could play the funk, but then we would, we would turn heads by playing some odd time stuff in the middle of a funk show. And um, that was fun to do too. And then we had Sheila. Sheila would, we'd give her part of the show, and she was young and fine at that time too. She would just turn it out by herself. So we had a lot of different go-to people in that band, you know. Um, and Dougal would play. You know, Duke could always look at me, and any time he looked at me, I was ready to play. So you know, at that time, I. That's this is when I started knowing how to solo and how to do my thing at that time and develop my style, and, which I'm still. I'm still doing I'm still playing the same old stuff but I'm still it's still getting down still making making his turn
1: love that you know gotta keep it going Um,
0: yeah
1: well the great thing about those albums back then uh, was the variety on those Duke albums I mean it went all over the place it was like a trip around the world to listen to those those records
0: yeah yeah that was Duke though Duke was just musically I'm sure he had musical ADD. He couldn't stay in one, one place. He was just all over the place. Brazilian music, funk music, just everything. And, and, you know, you had to play all those different styles to play with him. You just couldn't be a funk cat, which I thought I was until indugo and uh, George beat me up. And, you know, they didn't teach me. They just put it, they, come on. You know, and I had fun doing it, learning those different styles of music.
1: How did uh, being able to read music kind of change your life, if at all?
0: It just just took a little bit of the stress off going to play a recording session. I still don't like reading music. Mm. I don't, I hate it, you know, but it just, I wouldn't have to go to the studio and sit and watch the piano player's bass hand. Or say, can you play this lick? You know, so I would know how to do that, but I would still change the line around and make them love it. You know, you, you could write me a bass until I don't play it, and make you love what I did. So I did. I made, I made a, I made a huge amount of money doing that. But um, you know, it makes it easier to play TV shows and different things where you don't have uh, a lot of time to rehearse. If you could put your eyes on it, it makes it much easier.